You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Marriott's Big Breach and Dunkin' Donuts' Big Breach and, and Urban Massage's Embarrassing Exposure. Lessons are drawn about third-party risk, password reuse, and the importance of being less creepy to the people you do business with. Fancy Bear shows up to paw at the fish swimming in Germany's government. Distinguished engineer and IoT security strategist from Cisco, Michelle Gell, joins us. And how much did Sam Sam really cost people? FBI? DOJ? Is it billions or billions? In either case, you're talking about real money. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, November 30th, 2018. Hotel chain Marriott disclosed this morning that data belonging to about 500 million guests over the last four years have been illicitly accessed. Attackers have been in the company's Starwood guest reservation database since 2014. The brands affected included more than just Marriott, W Hotels, St. Regis, Sheraton Hotels and Resorts, Weston Hotels and Resorts, Element Hotels, Aloft Hotels, the Luxury Collection, Tribute Portfolio, Les Meridian Hotels and Resorts, Four Points by Sheraton, and Design Hotels were all hit. Starwood, acquired by Marriott in 2015, disclosed a breach affecting 50 properties shortly after the acquisition closed. As Krebs on Security reminds readers, in the course of giving a brief and helpful review of significant hospitality sector breaches. Most of the affected guests, around 375 million of them, lost data that included contact information, name, address, phone number, email address, passport number, Starwood preferred guest account information, date of birth, and gender. An undisclosed number of guests also lost pay card information, as ZDNet reports. Theft of this sort of data, of course, opens up the possibility of some large-scale identity fraud. We've received a lot of informed speculation from industry sources on the incident. One spans John Gunn thinks the impact on the victims is the most important aspect of the hack, and he zeroes in on the theft of passport numbers. Gunn said in an email, quote, It is remarkably easy to request a replacement credit card from your financial institution, and you are not responsible for fraudulent activities. Try that with your passport. End quote. Bromium's Sherbin Naum commented, quote, After a four-year long-term stay in the Starwood Hotel database, the hackers finally checked out and with more than complimentary bathrobes. End quote. He notes that the hackers were apparently quietly present in the hotel chain systems for at least four years and that this patient persistence is increasingly characteristic of the more damaging sorts of criminal activity. Another breach in the hospitality industry hit Dunkin' Donuts, which sustained a credential-stuffing attack that yielded details of customers' D.D. Perks loyalty accounts. 
The hackers didn't compromise Dunkin' Donuts' own systems, but merely tried credentials they'd gained in other unrelated attacks on various third parties. Dunkin' Donuts did indeed share customer information with some third parties, in accordance with its terms of service, and one of those was the source of the breach. Dunkin' Donuts discovered the issue at the end of October and strongly urged that its customers reset their passwords and not reuse them across different accounts. Why steal donut shop loyalty points? No, it's not because skids are out there jonesing for a donut Bavarian cream-filled or even some marbled frosted. Instead, the crooks are selling the points to those who are. There's a brisk black market trade in all varieties of loyalty points on the dark web, and DD Perks points have been a staple in the markets for some time. As Motherboard puts it, after doing some window shopping, the points can be had dirt cheap. So this is a petty crime sort of hack, and if the criminals make a pile doing it, their secret will be volume. Not quite hospitality, perhaps, but London-based Urban Massage's booking app was apparently not protected by any sort of password at all, and the Elasticsearch skinny on some 300,000-plus clients was left out there exposed to inspection by a Shodan search. The good news is that there weren't pay card data among the exposures. The bad news is that employee comments about the customers, including complaints about behavior the blue stockings over at TechCrunch sniffishly called creepy, well, those were out there too. But if you've recently booked a massage into a Marriott property while enjoying a chocolate-frosted donut and a medium coffee, check your wallet. We're just saying. Fancy Bear is making another run at German lawmakers. Spiegel is reporting that Snake, another name for APT28, also known, of course, as Fancy Bear, is fishing targets in the Bundestag and Bundeswehr and various embassies. The evident goal is espionage. Snake, APT28, Fancy Bear, remember, they're all variant names for a hacking crew out of Russia's GRU. Finally, the losses to SamSam ransomware and the costs in recovery and remediation it imposed were surely disturbingly high. The FBI's statement pegged it at 30 billion with a B. The Department of Justice indictment said 30 million with an M. In either case, it's a lot. And what's three orders of magnitude between Maine Justice and the J. Edgar Hoover building? Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. 
multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Rob, we had a story come by from Andy Greenberg from Wired. Uh, this was how hacked water heaters could trigger mass blackouts. Uh, so an IoT threat that uh, could cause the grid to go down. Uh, what's your take here? Yeah, I think this is when I'm going to I'm going to try to position multiple aspects. I'm going to position first and foremost. I've worked with Andy before. He's usually a really nuanced journalist, and he tries to capture the story correctly. So yeah. right off the bat. When I hear it's Andy and I look at this article, like I read the title, I'm like, oh crap, here we go. And then I read the reporter's <laughs> name, I'm like, ah, well, there might be something to it. And, and in all of these discussions, the positive thing I'll say, because I think I come on the show and he was asking these questions where I'm like the skeptic. I, you know, I got a lot of positive things to say too. So <laughs> the, the positive thing I'll say about the story is the interconnectivity of our IoT type devices in the home, as well as the industrial internet of things. So your robot arms, your smart meters, your, your various. Uh, interconnected components that haven't been traditionally connected of industrial environments, that the interconnectivity of both of those is very interesting and introduces risk that has not been fully appreciated. And we even see this in places like gas pipelines and oil refinery and manufacturing where cloud-based applications are starting to get access directly to sensors and, and various components of industrial automation in a way that they've never been accessed before and introduces risk from a cyber resilience as well as cyber threats component that hasn't been fully appreciated. So on the backdrop, this is all a discussion that's good to have, Mm -hmm. and we should be talking about it and trying to figure out where the risk is. On the other hand, I'm never a big fan of kind of the highlights of, hey, here's a real problem. We should look into it or we're all going to die. Like that's (laughs) that's where the story generally goes of like, whoa, man, there's, there's a gap. There's yeah. a whole big gap. And so the water heater discussion, and, and, and Ben Miller, our, our director of threat operations, that, that was in the story and quoted is saying that the size required of the botnet to be able to do that out of these components is not available today. There's not enough of the smart water heaters in this story, as an example, to have any necessary impact on grid operations or reliability of the grid based on size and scope of the problem today. However, that's not to say, oh, well, as it expands, we will. Well, no, as things expand, there will also be other considerations. And where a lot of these stories fall a little flat is they're great about identifying some risk, but they're not already aware of the compensating controls in place today. There's another similar story that came out a couple months ago that was a really good paper by some researchers 
that looked at smart sprinkler systems and said, look, you could hack one of these gateways and turn all the sprinkler systems on and empty a city's reservoir within a couple hours. Hmm. And, and so on its surface, some of these things are technically true. Like they dug into it, they looked into it, they, they measured the flow rates of the sprinkler systems, how much water would have to be in there. Like all these things are technically accurate on what you could do from a technology standpoint, but aren't necessarily accurate on what could happen considering everything else. As an example, any water engineer or operator sitting there at your utility, uh, your local water utility, is not going to watch their reservoir empty and be like, oh man, that's super <laughs> weird. Like they're, they're going to take actions. Like if the system itself doesn't take actions, which there are you know safeguards put into the systems themselves. So even if the system itself doesn't just trip and go, yeah, that's too much flow going out. We're going to throw an alarm and, and take some action in the system, which is more likely to happen. Then your human operator will be like, yeah, that's, something's wrong, turn off that line. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. And so the same discussion with this water heater discussion of a botnet, you know, a, a sufficiently sized botnet that would have to occur would first have to go completely undetected. Botnets are usually pretty noisy. Um, everybody would have to miss this. And let's just say that that all happens. Then by the time it actually starts doing something, then you've got disconnects that could be put into place. You know, your electric grid operators are used to, I mean, it's not necessarily a good thing to do, but they're, they're used to having to shuffle power around in, in adverse situations. Like it may be a, a facility that they were expecting, like a cogent facility they were expecting power out of this morning, had a failure, so they have to pull generation from another you know, portion or you know, there's some faults on the lines. They've got to usher power around. I mean, they're, they're used to moving electricity around. Even I mean I think about high high demand days for things like air conditioning where they'll they'll have rolling brownouts. Exactly. I mean, the, the, so it's it's technical accuracy is possible one day, but it's just not realistic given all of the other considerations. You have to remove all security considerations. You have to remove all human considerations. You have to remove all system considerations, and, and it, you basically create this isolated lab environment where something like that's possible. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to talk about it. And it's also important to just have this conversation and go, well, what of our safeguards would help us with this situation? Like, oh, these things. Oh, cool. Those are important. So make sure we don't take those out. Right. You know, like it, it's important to have these conversations. And I think the dialogue is good. But freaking out to come over, like, oh, my gosh, smart heaters, smart, smart water heaters. Take down the grid. Like, no, dude, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's more of the point. All right. Well, Rob Lee, thanks for joining us. My guest today is Michelle Gell. She's a distinguished engineer and IoT security strategist at Cisco, with over 30 years in the industry. We started our conversation discussing the work she's done with IoT devices in smart cities. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of great potential for cities to use IoT infrastructure to provide, say, early warning system for floods which is something that's been done in Texas and Mexico to help make better use of resources that are scarce, whether it's power, whether it's water, uh, to better protect the, the, the city, provide you know, more convenient traffic flow. So there's, I think there's a lot of potentials, and cities do need to implement that type of automation to improve the overall management of their city, but there are definitely some challenges in general with, I'll just call them IoT ecosystems. Can we um, uh, touch on uh, some of the privacy issues there? How do you make sure that 
when these systems are going online that they're also uh, respecting the citizens' ability to maintain their privacy. Yeah, so that's that's one of the bigger issues that come up. Right? The, one, the, the smart city program that I was on uh, last year, actually for about 18 months, was in Europe, more specifically in London. So one of the actions they took, and I wasn't part of this because I in the U.S. and it was in London, they had a very focused group that they spun up initially that was all around the privacy in terms of understanding what data was going to be collected. Did the, you know, the, the citizens had an opportunity to opt in uh, where possible. And like one example would be one of the use cases they ran was, uh, I'll just, I'm not sure what the official name, but it was essentially an early warning system and health management system for people with asthma. And so they had smart inhalers and they would get alerts on their mobile phone when there was a air quality or there was a big, you know, there was a lot of port activity coming in because they always knew the pollution was higher when the, the transport ships come in. So they would get an early warning and the, the recommendation might be to use their smart inhaler. So there was be a personal, potentially personal information, but they were opting in like, I'm going to participate in this smart health monitoring, therefore I know that they have my, you know, my inhaler numbers registered to a user number assigned to me and my doctor knows what that is. So they approached it from the beginning of designing that solution, what needs to happen. There are other incidental (laughs) privacy, I'll call them privacy violations in my personal view that, that happen that is one of the things that I brought up. For example, you have a, a, a smart city implementation with like a, a video, an interactive video wall where the citizens can come in this this uh, big uh, building and then they can, you know, it's like the multi-screens and they can click on the screen and maybe they want to see what tourist activities and they can click on another screen and see news. Well, there's another camera that's monitoring the video board. And so when they walk in the building, do they know that there's another camera that's capturing them or perhaps a camera that's actually seeing people that aren't even interacting with the board. So you have that sort of incidental, maybe this not necessarily personal privacy information, but if I didn't know I was going to be on the camera when I walked by, uh, do I know that? So there are challenges with smart city implementations and, and privacy is paramount, but in the connected world, there, I would say the industry as a whole is still learning and maturing what approaches need to be taken to ensure that all these IoT, you know, sensor-enabled devices that are capturing various information, maybe a single device is not capturing personal information, but say in my ecosystem in my house or the way I interact with the world across the day, there's a lot of different data. And if you combine that, the combination of all the data may reveal more about me than I understand. And may not be aware of. So it's not in, in as individual sensors to look at. We also have to look about how the data is combined and looked at that. And the industry as a whole has a lot of maturity that's needed in that area. I, I want to talk uh, some about your role as a pioneer in the industry, and particularly as a pioneering woman in the industry. I, I'm wondering, uh, what's your perspective been coming up through this industry that is certainly male-dominated? What have you seen, and, and how do you feel like things have been recently? Well, I do know in the early days, I I do get asked this question quite a bit that I, it was never, I never really stopped and thought like, Hey, I'm the only girl in the room. 
I think it was just more of a expected because it was the late 80s, right? It was still way more male-dominated than it was now. But and even through the, the 90s, there just wasn't a industry standard focus on it. And then it became a more like, wow, there's just there's not very many of us in here. And you didn't really hear about any focused activities. I think the first sort of aha moment I had and some other women is typically when women go to a security conference or any kind of technical conference, but my experience, security conferences, you could sit in a room with a thousand people or a couple hundred people. Uh, you could look around and count, right? You could see that there wasn't very many women. But this one conference was a SANS conference. We went to the ladies' room at break and there was actually a line. We all kind of looked at each other and like, wow, there's enough of us that there's a line. That We haven't seen that before. And so I always tell people that was sort of like a aha moment, like, wow, we have enough women in the room. There's a line. And so then you began to see organizations have more of a, uh, a focus. What I have learned and more of the industry is coming to an awareness about is we really need to reach the youth in middle school because that's when they're starting to make their decision about what I want to be when I grow up. And if they don't know that cybersecurity is an opportunity, and most often they don't, then it's, it's not even on their radar. They may learn about it later, but if we can get the word out at an earlier age, it, there's a lot of great opportunities in this field. There's, there's a high need. And then being able to demonstrate that it's an exciting industry. And women like to save the world. They like to help people. And phrasing it from what are the things that you can do with a cybersecurity background that makes an impact in the world? How can you help a financial institution be secure? How can you help in the medical field? How can you secure a smart city and so that city can make uh, efficient uses of its resources and be secure? So that's the way I feel and growing numbers of people feel in the industry that we need to have the messaging to the younger generation so they see it as a great opportunity and they find it uh, exciting and then help them with, with skills and understanding like, okay, there's still going to be a lot of guys and you may be the only girl in your cybersecurity group at school, but keep going, you know, be bold, be brave, step, step out and just go for it because there's great opportunity. That's Michelle Gell from Cisco. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.